0: This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we set the stage for the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's right. We're going to do something a little interesting today. This is always a part of teaching that I have
1: a hard time engaging. And I have some, uh, I have uh, actually a post that I wrote a long time ago about this. And I thought I would just kind of pull that out today and and look at it. We're going to do that kind of in the middle of the episode today. Because what we're going to do is I want to take the next... I don't know, two or three podcasts. And I want to talk about the rest of the book of Matthew, but I want—I don't want to do it in the same way that we've kind of been doing it, like read some verses, do some commentary, read some verses, do some commentary. I want to talk about it in ways that I'm going to have to like talk about the whole big picture. But, but I made that promise that we were going to do every verse of Matthew. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, every verse of Matthew 26 and 27 today and don't shut off your podcast because I got things to say in the middle of it. And I got some things to say at the end of it. So you listen through. All right? All you pod listeners out there,
0: you you listen. You, um, you think people would turn it off just because we're reading
1: I would straight, hope straight not. text? I would hope that that would not be true of our listeners here at the BMO Podcast.
0: If anything, it seems like it would increase our request to uh, create an audio version of the Bible.
1: Well, don't even give them those ideas. The answer to that is no.
0: We do not have the manpower. We don't have the manpower nor the um, the licensing agreements. Yes, from, that was right. From the New International Version people.
1: Although if I was going to have an audio commentary or an audio version of the Bible, I would want Brent Billings to be my reader. I'll tell you that much right now. Well, it would it would require a significantly different setup than we have here. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Uh, Brent's going to read. Here's our here's our roadmap today. Brent's going to read us uh, Matthew 26, and then I'm going to share some thoughts. Matt, uh, Brent's going to read us Matthew 27. I'm going to just kind of share some closing thoughts, maybe some suggestions for you as a listener, maybe your discussion groups, those kind of things, and uh, and and then we'll wrap it up today. So we'll see how how long it takes to read a couple chapters of Matthew and
0: Marty to talk a little bit. All right. <laughs> Marty to talk a little bit (laughs) that's our wild card yeah that's right All right, Matthew 26 when Jesus had finished saying all these things he said to his disciples as you know the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him but not during the festival they said or there may be a riot among the people While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus... Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way? In that hour Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, "'Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you?' But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, "'I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God.' "'You have said so,' Jesus replied. "'But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven.' Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, "'He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses?' Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them. I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Good work, Brent Billings. That was a long chapter. It was a little bit.
1: (laughs) How many verses were in that chapter? Uh,
0: 75.
1: All right. Yeah. That was, it did some work there.
0: I have several things that I noticed, uh, but maybe my most burning question is. Oh, I like this. Okay. What do you think, uh, was the hymn that they sang?
1: Oh, I should have a good answer to that question because it should be a post Passover hymn. Uh, I have no idea. I would assume it's a Psalm of some kind. It may not have been, um, but I do not know what the post-Seder, especially in the first century, liturgy was. That is a wonderful question. Probably a good Google search for one of our listeners. Might even reveal some answers. Who knows?
0: I have no idea. But if it was a psalm, I was thinking maybe Jesus was like going over his life psalm. Yeah. And like something came out, the disciples picked up on like, oh, yeah, let's sing that one. And yeah, they all sure. Yeah. Who sing it. Yeah. But knows? I, I have no idea.
1: Make a great movie moment. <laughs> sure, <laughs> uh okay, so here's the deal. I don't like teaching about this last week of Jesus' life as a teacher, as a teacher, I just don't like it, and I'm not really sure totally why um There are certain high moments in the Christian calendar that have always meant a ton to me as just a church goer, as a person of faith. One of those is advent, um Christmas Eve. I just grew up with really good, a lot of just really tender memories of. Um, meaningful memories of holding a candle at candlelight services, Christmas Eve. Um, I, I, obviously, Resurrection Sunday is one of those. Um, they just mean a lot to me. This whole, The whole idea of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus being so profound and such a key central part of our faith. It's, uh, maybe it's intimidating. I don't know. There's something about it that makes it hard for me as somebody who likes to lean into the academia and the lighthearted critical thinking. That as a teacher, I just struggle to engage this stuff. And I remember, I think the last time I got to do a Christmas Eve service, Brent, I I wrote out a homily, and uh, that went over like a bag of bricks. <laughs> and so we came, we came, and we this Resurrection Sunday, I preached at our church, and I did the, I, I wrote a manuscript, which went better. This transcript went better than my Christmas Eve a few years ago, uh, but still got mixed reviews. It just, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. Like. Uh, when, whenever I would engage this teaching before, I feel like I would over—I would psych myself up, psych myself out. Whatever the right phrase is, like I would, I would be so overworked about the gravitas of what we're dealing with, um, that I would mess it up. So here we are in this in this final week. So um, I don't—I don't like to make one of the most sacred and significant acts of all human history merely an academic exercise. I don't think there's anything wrong with dealing with the cross from an academic perspective. Um, I'm thankful for people that have done that. I've learned a ton from their studies. Um, there's a book. <laughs> I'm I'm reaching into a different pool here to grab this recommendation out, Brent Billings. This is not the typical recommendation that Marty tosses out on uh, the old Bayma podcast, but session three, we'll get over it. Um, the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Um you know, I typically moved away from the world of apologetics and a lot of that stuff, but uh, that book just did a really great job of treating the academic, the science, the history behind crucifixion, what's happening from a medical perspective., uh, just a great
0: uh, you said you remember reading that when you were when you were younger. I was in high school, yeah the uh the scientific aspect was definitely more important to me back then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and so there's that read I'd recommend that. Um and there's another uh, just for the whole week in general. Uh we recommended the book I believe last podcast perhaps, but The Last Week by Crossen and Borg. Um uh that was recommended by one of our listeners. Uh, It's going to get a lot of mileage here in the last few podcasts of session three, just because it's a great read. I don't agree with every single nuance. Um, They're very uh, liberal textual critics. Okay. So everybody brace yourself for that. Like that is who they are. Um, But uh, I think they hold it well. And I think we're big enough boys and girls that we can think critically and pick and choose what we agree with and don't like and know why. And that's all a good exercise for us. So great book recommend there. Super, super great. Um, I can't remember if I gave it four stars or five stars, Brent. I think it was four stars for me. Pretty sure it's four. I, I ended up on my favorite shelf though.
0: I notice when, when you give something five stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those are rare. Those are rare little gifts.
1: So yeah, I, I appreciate that. I remember in Bible college, I had a... There were three Life of Christ classes that were required for our degree programs. Um, and they took the first half of Jesus's life, and it was Life of Christ Part 1, the early years. There was Life of Christ Part 2, the later years. And we did an entire semester long class on the final week of Jesus's life. So um, a lot of a lot of time and mileage spent here.
0: And it's good. Especially if you consider all four gospels. There's I mean, John, especially this there's, there's so much written from this absolutely. last week. Like yeah. there's a lot of material to work
1: with. Absolutely. And you're right. John has chapters and chapters of discourse. So absolutely. So I I don't know why my hesitancy, but maybe it's because I've spent my whole life in the church, uh, surrounded by a discussion that finds its center at the cross of Christ. Maybe it's that I still find myself captivated by its story and its testimony. Maybe it's the week when I chose not to go with my parents to my grandfather's funeral. I can still remember uh, it was an Easter. It was a it was a Holy Week weekend, and my grandfather passed away and they asked me if I wanted to go. I decided not to go. And so instead, I was at Good Friday service um, all by myself, weeping uncontrollably for reasons that I still don't really understand. Um, I've never cried like that in all my life. And to this day, hearing the hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord, uh, will will certainly bring me to my knees. Uh, Maybe it's all the above. I don't know why. But the gospel accounts on the crucifixion caused me to want to write poetry and speak eloquently and not talk about history on a podcast. Captivating, thundering, deep, moving, profound, disturbing, soothing. These are words that only begin to scratch the surface of what I experience on Good Friday every year in a story that speaks volumes into my heart with words I don't fully understand. There are moments when I see the order of death tap out in submission to something more profound than defeat could ever be. There are moments when I feel as though God has joined us in all of our sorrow, and it is so good to have his company. There are moments when I sense the greatest statement of love there could ever be expressed and the, and the truly unique, counterintuitive story of a God who would lay down his life for others. There are also moments of anger when I see the injustice and the confusion at why the death is necessary. Which leads me, by the way, to other thoughts about atonement and how I am so thankful that so many theologians are asking really good, important questions about what the Bible actually teaches on atonement. These questions are important because they reach to the core of our understanding of the heart of God. Why would he die? Why would he have to die? Did he have to die? And how is any of this explained logically in ways that actually make reasonable sense? These questions are important. Because I sit in those Good Friday services and I need to understand what I am witnessing and remembering. What am I supposed to see at the cross? Uh, so I don't want to talk today about atonement theory. Uh, we'll do that later in session four, Brent. I'll make that promise. We'll do that. Book of Hebrews. We'll talk about atonement. Um, so I'm not going to talk about atonement here, but I will make some passing recommendations, by the way. Uh, I'd recommend a few books, uh, a couple books by Tony Jones. Uh, one of them is A Better Atonement. It's a little three-chapter ebook. book um, And I just really, really enjoyed that. Uh, There's a book that I have purchased, but still have yet to read. Uh, But it should be very good. I enjoy Tony Jones. He's going to be a very liberal theologian. So you can prepare yourselves and brace yourselves for that. But I love Tony's work. Uh, He wrote a book called Did God Kill Jesus? We're going to put that in the show notes. Um, I did read a book by uh, Scott McKnight, uh, given to me by a Bayma student, um, A Community Called Atonement is what that book was called. That one was excellent. It kind of took all the different theories on atonement because there are different theories. Brent, did you know this?
0: I was aware. You
1: were aware. Were you aware of this before you went through Bayma? Um, he...
0: I don't know. Maybe he had some hunches? Yeah. I, I certainly had not had them all like laid out and right. distinguished. Yeah. So there are like four or
1: five really main theories. There's a couple, two or three outliers as well, and who knows how many more. But there are different theories on what is atonement, and why does it work, and how does it work, and, and what's going on there, and why did Jesus die on the cross? And there's all kinds of good theology behind that. But uh, uh, Scott McKnight's book took them all, and his metaphor was the metaphor of a golf. Uh, a golf club bag a bag of golf clubs and he says every theory has its place but you need to know when to use it like you don't pull out your putter on the tee box nor do you have your seven iron on the green like you know where to use the different theories on a tournament. i thought that was a really good metaphor and i thought he did a really good job of drawing that out hopefully most of our listeners are golfers yeah 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 uh, uh, hopefully that makes basic sense <laughs> So, how did the early Christians understand Jesus's death on the cross? Uh, they would have probably talked about ransom captive theory. To be, awesome, to be um, honest, how has atonement theory evolved over time? Things like Christus Victor, which is making a comeback these days. Uh, what about the what are the dangers we find in substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement? That's the theory that most evangelicals are familiar with today. Like most of us that have grown up in the church, have that kind of understanding of atonement. We'll talk about that all in session. Four. But wrestling with what I believe the scriptures teach about atonement has done nothing but help me be more captivated by the story of the cross. It's only heightened my awareness of some of the feelings, emotions, and images that surround the crucifixion. Needless to say, I will not be attacking um, in our podcasts that follow. I'm not going to spend time going verse by verse and adding commentary. I, I want to do that. I want to do something else. What I want to do instead, Brent, is over the course of these next few podcasts, you and you're going to read us one more chapter here today before we leave. So, we read all of 26. We're going to read all of 27. And I want to take a look at a few things. In the next podcast, I want to take a look at the plot to kill Jesus. Like, who did kill Jesus? Is it the Jews? Is it the Romans? Like, who is it? Who is responsible for the execution of Jesus? And so, I want to take a look at that question, uh, look at the chief priests. Uh, I want to look at the Jewish people. I want to look at the Romans. And then in the next podcast, I want to talk about the betrayer. I want to talk about Judas. I want to talk about Peter's denial. I want to talk about what's going on there with the betrayal of Jesus. Uh, And then in in the next podcast, probably our last podcast before the capstone, um, we'll probably spend some time looking at the resurrection, uh, maybe recommending some things to listen to. And uh, and looking at the Great Commission, closing out Matthew, and we will be outie we are coming down the home stretch here. so that's that's kind of what i'd like to do. so rather than kind of like verse by verse I, I want to read it all and then i want to go back and take a look at it. so i'll i'll kind of wrap up some thoughts here in a moment. um but unless you have any other questions, Brent, how about you fire away with chapter 27 and wrap us up
0: here. early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. so they bound him, led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called the Messiah? They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews." Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and then offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard.
1: All right. So... There we go. Two chapters of Matthew read today. So here's my suggestion for all of our listeners, especially those that are in discussion groups that are like, man, Marty, you really hung us out to dry here on this episode. Don't have anything to discuss. My recommendation would be read read all the other accounts. Read the other gospel accounts. Brent's just went to all the trouble of reading us Matthew, two chapters of Matthew. Um, spend time together as a group looking over. Uh, have somebody read Mark. Have somebody read what's in Luke. Have somebody even read, maybe not the entire discourses that are found in John, but what, what kind of crucifixion narrative is found in John? Look at those. Pay attention to the questions you have. Uh, become familiar with the setting. Um, I, I kind of told you where we were heading in the next few podcasts. We're going to talk about um, the chief priests and, and Rome. We're going to talk about Peter and Judas. And the more familiar we are with the stories, the better we're going to be able to interact with them. So it's a little bit different. It's a different kind of podcast. I get that. It's okay. We won't do it a lot. Um, but uh, uh, maybe spend some time just becoming really intimate and familiar with the story so that when we have those conversations in in the next couple podcasts, uh, we're more equipped to to have those as a group. So that would be my recommendation. And maybe we'll find... That there's something beautiful hiding in there and we need to, maybe we'll read more text as groups. I don't know.
0: I do have a question. Okay. I like it. Maybe a couple. So he does the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yep. Some of those standing there heard this and said, he's calling Elijah. And then it says immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. What are, what is happening? Right. Why do they think it's Elijah? Why did they get the sponge? Is that like, I don't know. Yeah, and it seems like there's yeah. something going on there. And who are these people? Yeah,
1: and there's a lot of and and the people aren't distinguished. Um, there's some harmonizing that we could do in different gospel narratives. Um, there's a lot of discussion about what is he cry, is he crying out in Hebrew? Is he crying out in Aramaic? What is he crying out? Either way, if he's crying out in Hebrew or Aramaic, um, the sound, especially if you're if you're literally dying on the cross, like he's in rough shape here. He's probably not articulating his words well. He is probably not enunciating clearly. And remember, Elijah's name is Eliyahu, Eliyahu. So if he's gasping and crying out, my God, my God, because if you remember, Eliyahu means Yahweh is God. So they're hearing the God part and they're and they're thinking he's crying out Elijah's name. Which would make sense. He's, you know, if they think they see him as this messianic character, that's probably what they're mishearing, is likely. That's my own personal leaning on that. It certainly makes sense. Yeah. And so the other accounts, and I don't think I talk about it in Matthew here, I'm just double checking right here. Uh, He put it on a staff. This, in Matthew's account, it says he put it on a staff. In other gospel accounts, they put the sponge on a branch of hyssop. Now, there's not just a random person. No random person is being allowed to go grab a sponge and lift it up to Jesus. Like the soldiers are not letting any of that stuff happen. So what we have is a Roman soldier. One of the things that they would do to humiliate uh, crucifixion victims is hyssop was used as toilet paper in their world. Um, You'd use the leaves of hyssop. And so, it says they put it on a branch of hyssop. You're obviously not using a branch as toilet paper, but you're using the leaves. What they've probably done here, if you harmonize these gospel accounts together, is they've probably taken some used toilet paper. They've hit it in a sponge and they're lifting it up to Jesus, kind of mocking him, acting like they're trying to give him some relief. It's, and Matthew's account here, you, you don't see all those details. If you use the other gospel accounts, I think what you see here is a crowd kind of getting worked up here in a moment. And the soldier's kind of joining the frenzy in a mocking sort of way and being like, yeah, quick, grab a sponge, give him something to drink. Uh, Maybe he'll be saved, all in this kind of sarcastic, satirical, mocking kind of way. And what they've lifted up to him is probably
0: use toilet paper so this isn't some kind of a remes to something that elijah did with the sponge
1: well, i mean that's a fantastic question i don't think so but boy i I've, I've been wrong about that before so in the text always a great always a
0: great assumption and all right place to go in. so why would Pilate agree to give joseph the body
1: uh, it's a good question. He doesn't really care. Like, Pilate doesn't care. They're going to take these guys down. These are, in, in, in Romans, in, in the eyes of the Romans, these are terrorists. Like, literally think about the way we think about terrorists today. That's how they view the people that are crucified. Crucifixion is a, is a sentence that is saved almost uniquely for the charge of terrorism, insurgency. Um, it was safe for zealots. You, you crucified zealots to make an, a spectacle, an example of what happens when you stand up against Rome as a terrorist. So um, they just take these guys down and they just throw them into a, a, a shallow grave. And those shallow graves are usually dug up by dogs. Here's this really wealthy person. I have wondered. There's nothing in the text here. This is all speculation. But I've wondered, Joseph of Arimathea, a really wealthy guy. He's got connections to the Sanhedrin. Does he have priestly connections? Um, we don't know, but it's... And, and remember the relationship that the chief priests and the Sanhedrin had with Rome. Like, he's connected, and he is a person of influence. Now, we know from the story he's he is leaning and swinging towards, especially here at this point in the story, he's this follower of Jesus. He's become this disciple of, of Christ. But is his life one where he's had a a real position of influence and Pilate couldn't care like he couldn't care less i'm just going to throw him in a shallow grave but hey you want his body you got it um and he gives it to him did it come with a bribe a payment the text doesn't tell us that but
0: who knows but it's a good question yeah and this this uh one chapter actually kind of accentuates some of the uh naming problems we find in the bible you've got multiple jesus's You've got multiple Marys, you've got multiple Josephs. Correct. Well, only one Joseph in the chapter, but obviously right. there are many other Josephs. like my goodness people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. were a lot, very very a lot of name names. creativity back then, I guess. Yep.
1: Which is also why you always were son of so-and-so. Right. Even more important than your name was son of Joseph, that kind of idea.
0: Okay, so final question. Uh what is preparation day?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a really good conversation about how this week works and where everything actually happens. Preparation day is the day uh, where you prepare for the Passover. Um, it's the it's the day where the lambs are uh, not selected. That happened a week earlier. But where everything about Passover is prepared. It's the day that Passover sacrifice is going to happen. Uh, on this year, as I read it, there's some discussion about this. As I read it, the Passover sacrifice happening on Friday night. Um, I believe they ate the meal on Thursday night because... In the first century, there's a discussion about what do you do when Passover falls on Sabbath, because there's an awful lot of work involved with Passover. And they don't do it today, and it wasn't a part of Talmud, but there's some evidence that suggests that in the first century, they would have celebrated Passover on that year a week or a day earlier on Thursday night, but the actual Passover sacrifice would have still happened on Friday night, which is why you see Jesus doing Passover meal Thursday, He's being sacrificed as a Passover lamb on Friday, and then he's being resurrected on the first Sunday to follow Passover, which is always first fruits, and his resurrection falls on first fruits on that following Sunday in the tomb for at least twenty-six hours, um, maybe not much more than that. He's there for Friday night, all day on Saturday, and then Sunday morning, which, for in the, according to Jewish calendar, is three days. All right, there you go. I'm sure I could come up with a lot more questions, but... There's a lot of them in there. I even wanted to stop you as
0: you were reading. It was everything I could do to just uh, yeah. let you read. <laughs> I had the same problem. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. The, the text is, uh, you know, it's deep. There's, hey, we had a whole semester class on this one week, man. Right. And and people devote entire lifetimes to studying this, and I'm sure they feel like they're barely scratching the surface. So That was right. That'll All do right. it for this episode, I think. Yep. Join us for the next few. Yep coming up. All right. Uh, If you have any questions, if you come up with any uh, great ideas in your discussion groups, uh, as you pull these passages apart, as you bring in the voices of the other Gospels, please get in touch. You can find everything you need to know at com. Thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. We'll talk to you again soon. From then on, Judas From then on, Judas watched oh, Jeepers, I can't say his name. <laughs> from then on oh gee. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Oh my goodness, this is a long chapter. <sighs>